You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Barca, they make it out to a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appear before God in Zion. Hear my, pray- hear my prayer, Lord Almighty God. Listen to me, God of Jacob, Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk in blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Thanks, Mez. Uh, Good evening, everyone. My name's Tim. I'm the Senior Minister here at St John's. And we're continuing on this teaching series uh, that we're doing through all of this term. Uh, It's a series called Who Am I? And we're thinking about what the Bible has to teach us in terms of our identity, our humanity. What does the Bible actually say about who we are as human beings? Uh, When I was in my uh, first year at university, I was sitting in a psychology lecture with about 300, yay, yay, 300 other first-year psychology students. And the professor who was teaching the class at the start of the lecture said, Okay, I want you to put your hand up high in the air if you believe that human beings have a soul. If you have a soul, please put your hand up. Right? He wasn't talking about when certain music comes on um, that you just can't help but get your groove on. Okay? Now, a smattering of hands went up around the room. People said, yep, okay, I believe in a soul which was great for him because then he had his targets, right? These people uh, were the ones that he wanted to spend the rest of the lecture proving that they were wrong, proving that they were stupid. Uh, And so he proceeded through the rest of the lecture to sort of talk about the fact that if science could predict all of the electrical activity in the brain, then it could entirely predict human behaviour Uh, therefore showing that the idea that there was anything more to human beings other than just physical matter, uh, really just being brains within a body, was utter stupidity. And at the end of the lecture, he said, anyone who still believes in a soul 
put your hand up. And a few brave souls did. <laughs> Not many. Much less than they put their hand up at the start. So we are thinking through this series about who we are. And in the first two weeks of the series, we've looked at the fact that we're created by God. We're created beings. God's lovingly formed us, moulded us. And as creatures, people created by God, we stand in a particular relationship with God as our creator. Last week, we talked about the dignity that every human being has because we're made in the image of God. That's the way that the Bible describes humanity, that we're made to reflect the character of God, that God puts us in the world uh, with responsibility to care for the world, to rule over the good creation that God has made, that being in the image of God is about a shared responsibility, that we relate to one another as fellow image bearers, and that it guides our ethics. The way that we treat one another must be directed by the fact that other people are actually image bearers, reflections of God himself, and so we must treat them well and we must treat them rightly. Today we're kind of taking a little bit of a sidestep and we're thinking a bit more deeply about, well, what makes us up as human beings, right? What's, what's in the box, so to speak, when you, when you, you know, what, what's in this package? Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, arms and legs and kidneys and ribs and that sort of stuff, but what do we mean and what does the Bible mean when we speak about souls or minds, hearts, flesh, these sorts of terms that make up the human person? You see, I reckon that psychology professor was wrong in two ways. He was wrong, firstly, in what he was advocating, to say that human beings are nothing more than physical stuff. You can boil it down to just the raw materials, and there's nothing particularly special about human beings. Um, it's kind of a viewpoint that you find quite commonly, um, sort of amongst uh, atheistic scientists or materialists who hold this view that we're just material stuff. Um, it's often called nothing buttery, right, because you're nothing but matter. Um, this quote from a, a guy, Francis Crick, sums it up pretty well. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of identity and free will are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. That is all you are. Nothing more than that. Um, so I, I want to argue uh, as we go through that I think that that's an inadequate view of who we are. And I don't know how that makes you feel if that's all you are. But I think he was wrong in another way as well. I think he was wrong actually in the target that he was aiming at. Uh, I suspect that he had a particular view in mind about what people believed about the soul, which wasn't actually a biblical view of what the Bible teaches about the soul. And I want us to unpack uh, some of what the biblical language actually teaches about our personhood so we can better understand ourselves. Because we're complex, aren't we? We're complex human beings. We have emotions, we have thoughts, we have a conscience which kind of is an alarm where we get a sense of what's right and wrong. Um, uh, we do have bodies. 
Uh, and thinking about how all of that complexity within us interrelates with each other is a really important question. I should point out that the sorts of questions that we're tackling today are big questions. Um, they're not small things to deal with. These sorts of questions lie at the heart of philosophy and psychology and theology. Um, but I don't think it's good to avoid this stuff. I think if we're going to rightly understand ourselves, if we're going to have a sense of our identity and who we are, sort of self-awareness and what the Bible teaches about our humanity, then we just need to dive in and do our best to wrestle uh, with the questions as we go. I want us to start by looking at this psalm that Bronwyn read to us, Psalm 84, because I think it brings out some of the key ideas um, and issues that we need to grapple with. This is what it says from verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Uh, this psalm was uh, probably used by pilgrims who were journeying to the temple in Jerusalem. And it expresses here uh, a desire, a deep desire from the writer of this psalm for God. He just can't wait to get to the temple because that is where God is. That's where the presence of God is to be found. And he's expressing using different language to just say how much he has this deep desire for God and to be with him. So his soul yearns to go into God's courts. Uh, his heart, which reflects sort of the internal life and the flesh, which is more about the sort of outer aspect of his personhood, both cry out for the living God. So internal parts and external parts, every single bit of me, God, is just desiring you. I want you so much, God, that every single bit of me wants to be near you and with you. It's a beautiful picture, actually, of a deep desire for God, a yearning for him to be near him. And it expresses kind of the view that you see in the Bible, the, the Hebrew understanding of, of people as a unified whole, that there are different aspects to our personhood, um, you can talk about it in terms of our whole selves, our inner selves, and our outer selves, but we're really one self. And this one self here is expressing a deep desire for God and seeking after him. It's worth unpacking some of the terms a little bit further, though, and to see how they're, they're used, not just here in this psalm, but also at other places in the Bible, to get a bit of a sense of the meaning that's going on. So let's start with that word, heart. Now, when we speak about the heart, we often think about our emotions, right? So we sometimes talk about following your heart. Um, who here received uh, a card with a heart on it uh, this last week, Valentine's Day? Anyone lucky? I got one from my five-year-old son. Um, yeah, it was a heart shaped into a bear, and inside it it said, I love you very much. Yeah. Um, but we often, uh, when we speak about the heart, it's about our emotions. And in the Bible, that's true as well. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it includes the emotional life. 
So you'll read of passages in the Bible where um, someone is said that their heart is drawn to another person. They love, they love another person, so their heart is drawn to them. Or another example, often you'll read about hearts melting with fear when they're facing an army in front of them. Right? So fear is located in the heart. The emotions, different emotions, they're, they're in the heart, just like we would use that expression. But in the Bible, the heart is much broader than just the emotional centre of the human being. That's where thoughts take place as well. Now, we would say, well, you do your thinking in your brain, but biblically, the heart is where thoughts happen as well. So an example of that, in the story of Noah, God looks down on humanity and he says, um, God is sad because um, the thoughts of the human heart is evil all the time, God says. But it's expressed as the thought of the heart where the thinking takes place. So it's kind of the intellect as well. The heart in the Bible is also where decisions are made, um, kind of acts of will, I'm going to decide to do a certain thing. Uh, So in the story of the Exodus, where God rescues his people from Egypt, time and time again it says that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Right, what that's saying is he's being stubborn about the decision that he's making. He doesn't want to let God's people go, and so he's decided that he's not going to do it. He hardens his heart. So the heart, biblically, is also where the will is and decisions are made. The heart is also where the conscience is located. So that little alarm system I was speaking about where you get a sense of, oh, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing here, or, no, this feels right or seems right to me, so I'll keep pursuing it. Um, That is located in the heart biblically as well. So, for example, Hebrews 10 speaks of having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. So really, when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking about the totality of the inner life of a human being, the emotions, the thoughts the decisions, the conscience. It can be used for any one of those aspects. It can be used to cover all of them or it can be used sort of to describe the entire internal life of a person. It's a broad term and it varies as to how it's used. In contrast, the other term that's paired with that in Psalm 84, flesh, is speaking more about the the outer aspects of the human person, the stuff from which we're made of, our material self, our, our body, uh, it's sometimes uh, used, later, later down in Psalm 84, um, it's used to describe sort of um, our, our strength. So you've got a pairing down there in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are set on pilgrimage. So you've got heart coupled with strength because our bodies are what we execute our actions with. So it talks about what we're able to do, uh, our strength. It can also be used to talk about our weakness as humans because our bodies can't do everything that we want them to do. So there's phrases in the Bible like the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. We desire to do certain things but we just cannot carry it out. It's important to note that through the Bible, our flesh, our body, is usually seen positively. Right? God made our bodies 
God is a good creator and the things that he make makes are good. And so it's not like our flesh or our bodies are a bad part of us and there is something else spiritual which was good. Actually, the body is a good part of us that God has made. If you ever doubt that, look at Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word, speaking of the Son of God, who is eternal God himself, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. God himself was willing to take human flesh, a human body to himself and live amongst us. It's not like flesh is evil and bad. God himself uh, honoured it by taking it to himself in the person of Jesus, God himself in human form. Now, of course, we can misuse our bodies to do things that are in opposition to God. We can use our bodies for evil purposes. And sometimes you do see in the Bible that the flesh is expressed negatively. So Paul, in some of his writings, talks about the flesh in a negative sense, but he's speaking about humans acting in ways that go against God and use their bodies and use what God has given us for evil rather than for good and serving him. But bodies in themselves, our flesh, are not bad. They're a good part of God's creation. So you've got the inner life described in different ways and you've got the outer life as well. So let's consider the more difficult term then, the soul. Uh, This is a more tricky one, and I think it's tricky because I think we've got lots of baggage that has built up around it. And you might have particular views of the soul, and it's worth testing whether actually the Bible reflects the thinking that we have developed around the soul and what it is. So the word here that we have translated soul is the Hebrew word nephesh. In the New Testament in Greek, it's Psyche, which is where we get the term psychology. Literally, psychology is the study of the soul. It's ironic with that lecturer, isn't it? Um, Soul in the sense of mind and the inner life. But the, the Old Testament term, the word translated soul, is the term nephesh. And it's got a variety of meanings. It can mean just life or speak about us as living beings, um, It's a variety of meanings. Originally, when I was going to uh, do this sermon series, I was going to use a different psalm to Psalm 84. I was going to use Psalm 63, which is one I've used before. And then I read through it in preparation, and I went, the word soul doesn't even appear in this psalm. What was I thinking? But in our translation that we use in church, the NIV, it just doesn't translate it that way. It translates it all the way through as, as life, which is a legitimate translation. Uh, Here's why. A couple of weeks ago, we had a look at Genesis 2, and here's what we read about God making humanity. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That expression, a living being, includes that word, Nefesh, soul, he became a living soul, a living being. He came alive. God gave life to him, is what he's saying. And it's not like, okay, he was this physical matter and God infused some sort of spiritual thing into him. It's not like 
humans uniquely have a soul where the rest of God's living creation doesn't because you read exactly the same phrase used to describe the animals that God makes in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis 1.24, when God makes the land animals, he says, let the land produce living creatures. And that phrase, living creatures, is exactly the same as is used of humanity, living beings. Nefesh, soul, they're living souls as well. Not to labour the point, but in Genesis 1.30, the same phrase is used again for all animals, fish and birds, as well as the land animals as well. So whatever we want to think about this soul or nephesh as described in the Bible, it's not something that is unique to humans, but it's shared by other living things as well. It's kind of like what makes us alive, the life that God gives to his creation. The second thing is that it's not indestructible. Psalm 63 verse 9 says, but those who seek to destroy my life, it's it's that word, nephesh, soul, destroy my soul, shall go down into the depths of the earth. These are enemies of him who are wanting to destroy him. They want to take his life. But clearly it can happen. There's a threat to him. And we, kind of use, we do use the word soul in that way in our culture. If you're stranded on a desert island, you scrawl big letters as big as you can on the beach, don't you? S-O-S. Save our souls. You're not saying, I want a ship to come or a plane to come and they can leave my body behind as long as they take some spiritual part of me and rescue it. No, you're saying, get me off the island. Body and all, save every single aspect of me. Um, so in the Bible, this, it's not indestructible. It's not like it's an eternal part, an immortal part of us that lives on when the body dies. That's actually a view from Greek philosophy, Greek thinking, that is not a biblical understanding. In the Bible, there is one person who is immortal, God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, It is he, God, alone who has immortality, and dwells in unapproachable light. And it's made explicit in a contrast in Romans 1.23 when it speaks about humans. It says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the God who cannot die, for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. God alone is immortal, Humans and the rest of creation, animals, are mortal. It's not like there is something within us which is immortal in and of itself. Which is why the great Christian hope for life after death is resurrection. When we say the creed together, an expression of Christian faith, we say, We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We're not just speaking about Jesus being raised from the dead, but we're also saying that just as God raised Jesus from the dead and his body wasn't in the tomb anymore, so that is our hope for us, that God will raise us, all of us, including our bodies, into eternal life that we will share forever in a new creation with God. 
It was a radical countercultural view for Christians to proclaim that Jesus was risen from the dead because they spoke into a culture which said bodies are bad and the great hope is that the soul will escape from the body and get away. And Christians said, Jesus rose from the dead, bodily and all, and that's what we're looking forward to as well. It went against everything that the society was holding to. Christian hope is holistic, that God will redeem all that he has created, including our bodies. The third thing to say about the soul is that it's not some separate component of the human person that we can sort of divide ourselves up into bits, chop up the pieces and, and pull it all apart. The biblical view is much more integrated than that. It's a unified sense of the person that we are whole human beings and we can speak about different aspects of the person but not different parts. Now, it's important to emphasise this because there has been a tradition within Christian thinking of dividing up human persons in this way. And, and people take a verse like uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says, May the God of peace himself sanctify, which means make holy or set apart. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And people take that verse and they say, aha, that explains there's three parts to the human person. There is spirit, there is soul, and there is body. But it's simply not the way that the Bible uses that language. So a couple of examples. Jesus in John 12 says, now my soul is troubled. And then in the next chapter, we're told Jesus was troubled in spirit. So they're used as parallel, soul and spirit, parallel terms. Mary, when she knows that she's going to give birth to Jesus, sings a song and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Soul and spirit used as parallel terms. So it doesn't work in the way that the Bible actually uses the language to chop us up into different parts and to think about separating these different bits of the human person out. The Bible does use this sort of language, but it's speaking about different aspects to our personhood, and we are unified wholes who have these different aspects to us, rather than seeing them as separate components. Emphasising different aspects of our personhood. You can talk separately about our thought life or our emotional life, uh, our physical being, but they're really part of the whole that makes up the complexity of the human person. What I think we need to do is to try and hold two things in balance. Uh, first of all, we need to think of ourselves fundamentally as a unified whole, that God has made us as whole beings, integrated beings, interconnected beings, we shouldn't tear ourselves apart and say there's a spiritual part here and there's a material part here and never will the two meet each other. Actually thinking that way is incredibly damaging and when it's been done in Christian history, it leads to some bad results. Uh, so, for example, where people have held this view that the soul is this uh, spiritual part which is the good bit of us which lives on and the body 
is unimportant or even bad, uh, people do one of two things. They hate their body and they try and beat it into submission. So I don't know whether you've ever read The Da Vinci Code where there's that albino monk who flagellates himself, he beats his body, bad body, bad body, because he's trying, you know, it's, that's the bad bit of him and he tries to bring it into line with the good bit, which is the spiritual soul. Uh, this sense of hating our bodies or despising our bodies is unhelpful because God's made our bodies and they're good and he wants us to enjoy our bodies and to rejoice in what he's given us. But the other thing that can happen when you do this separation is you can think, well, what I do with my body doesn't matter because that's not the spiritual part of me. God's only interested in my soul. So I can go and have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. I can drink whatever I want to drink because it's just physical. It doesn't matter. It's just my body and God doesn't really care about that bit. He only cares about the spiritual part of me. That's a nonsense from a biblical perspective. God cares about every part of us. And he cares about what we do with our bodies. What are the implications for this? Let's think about it. Two things. Firstly, this has big implications for how we do mission. How we reach out with the good news of Jesus and share it with other people both locally and around the world. If we're whole people, whole complex people, and everyone in the world is made this way, that they're whole beings, and God cares about all of us, whole of us, every aspect of our being, then we need to share Jesus and minister to people with the entire good news for all of their person. Christians are sometimes accused of, well, Christians are just interested in saving people's souls. Well, we are. We are interested in saving people's souls, but also their emotions and their bodies and every single aspect of them. We care about it all. So when we do mission, it's got to be holistic. We want to proclaim the good news about Jesus. We want to tell people that Jesus is good news and they should put their trust in him and follow him. But we also want to live in such a way that people see the good news of Jesus reflected in our actions and the way that we live. We want to help people in their material circumstances and in their needs and in their emotional circumstances so that we can bring the gospel transformation to the whole of their societies and the whole of their persons. Uh, this guides the way, actually, that we make decisions as a church about who we partner with in mission. Written into our guidelines for mission partnerships is this phrase, organisations or individuals to which we make allocations should have a holistic understanding of the gospel. That is, proclaiming Jesus' person and work and displaying Christ's compassion and justice. It's got to be both word and action. It's got to encompass everything. And so we partner with Wycliffe Bible translators who are trying to put the Bible into people's heart language so they can understand and connect emotionally with God's word in the language that they best understand. We partner with organisations like Open House and Breakaway Camps who are reaching out to at-risk youth and seeking to help them and to build friendships and relationships 
and support them through all of the circumstances that are going on in their lives. We've got the Beers working with CMS in the Northern Territory who are training and equipping Indigenous leaders so that they can help their local communities and build the church up. Um, And they run things like trauma workshops in Indigenous communities, so people who have been affected by the bad circumstances happening around them can have their emotional trauma healed and dealt with because God cares about that stuff within our person. We work with Anglican Overseas Aid, working for justice, and when there's humanitarian crises, uh, crises bringing, bringing relief in those situations. Right? People are whole beings. They need God's mission to every aspect of their lives, and we need it in every aspect of our community life. And so that drives the way that we do mission as a church, locally and with the people that we partner with more widely. So it's got huge implications for mission. Secondly, it's got implications for discipleship, how we think about being followers of Jesus ourselves in our own lives. Growth in godliness, becoming more like Jesus, needs to impact our whole selves. Again, going back to that verse from 1 Thessalonians 5.23, When Paul writes this prayer, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of that verse is not to divide up our personhood but say God cares about every aspect of your being and he wants every part of you to be made holy, to be made like Jesus in the way that you live. Or take Jesus' own command. When Jesus says, here are the two great commandments, the first one that he gives us is, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. Jesus says, you're to love God with every single aspect of your being. God wants us to love him with every bit of us. God wants to change and transform every single bit of us. And God wants us to use every part of us in his service. So don't sort of divide off your spiritual time from the rest of your life. Oh, well, when I'm at church or when I'm at my life group, well, that's my sort of spiritual time for the week, but the rest of it is not spiritual and it doesn't matter what I do. That's to kind of carve up your person in terms of how you're living life in different parts. It's not being a whole person in all of your life. Don't do your thinking, use your mind when you're at school or when you're at work and then leave your brain outside at the door on a shelf when you come into church because God's not interested in the way that you think about things. Or if you're doing studies in a certain area, think about how do I think about this as a Christian? How do I use my mind to actually think Christianly and put through a Christian grid the things that I'm learning. You could be the expert in the area that you're studying to help the rest of the church think about these things Christianly if you use your mind that God has given you to serve him and to serve his people. Don't think that God doesn't care about what you do with your body. 
Again, as I said, this whole tragedy in Christian history of separating out our souls and our bodies means that people just think that they can do whatever they want with their bodies. And sometimes I hear people speak like that. They say, oh, well, it's just sex. It's just something physical that happens and it it doesn't mean anything. It's a nonsense biblically. It's actually a, a nonsense in terms of our personhood because the things we do physically affects our emotions affects the other part of us. We're all interconnected in our complexity as whole beings. And so what we do with our bodies, what we use our bodies for, does affect the other parts of us, and God cares about all of it. You're a whole being with many complex aspects to your personhood, and God loves all of it. God loves every aspect of your character. He wants you to love him with everything that you've got as well. Jesus died to save all of you. He has given you his Holy Spirit so that his Spirit will transform all of you, making you into Jesus, our model. And the great hope for us is that God will redeem all of us when he raises us from the dead and fully transforms us and makes us into the image of Jesus fully when his Holy Spirit has transformed us in our total person. So the challenge for us is to kind of live for that future hope and to be growing in godliness with every part of us now. You're a whole person and so use your whole person to serve God wholeheartedly, giving every aspect of who you are to him. Can I invite the band up as I pray? God, thank you for who you've made us to be. Thank you for the complexity of our life, our emotions, our thoughts, our physical nature, our conscience, all of these things. And we ask that you would work in every aspect of us, that we would be your servants and that we would use all of us to love and serve you and love and serve other people in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.